All right, good evening. Uh, nice, to, nice to get together tonight and be able to enjoy another Bible study. If you'll take a look in John chapter 5, the reading that was uh, given for us. John chapter 5, we're going to take a look at uh, this incident with the uh, healing of the uh, man at the pool of Bethesda. A uh, number of things are uh, significant about thinking about this situation. Uh, first and foremost, just a reminder, John gives seven signs in his book. I know I say that many times, but John gives seven signs in his book. This is the third of the seventh sign. The three that he's given so far were never given in the other gospel accounts. This one is seemingly as, well, even, even all three of them. As you read them, you kind of go, well, that's interesting. He turned water to wine. That's interesting. He healed a nobleman's son. Well, that's interesting. He healed a man who was at this pool. And it is so easy not to go beyond that and simply think of these as miracles and stories. And yet keep in mind, the Gospel Mark did, had Jesus doing 22 miracles in just eight chapters. He floods us with miracles. John's account is all about signs, and he only gives seven. It ought to tell us that when he chooses a sign to show us, there is great meaning to it, and there is something beyond what we might normally think that we need to understand. So we don't want to take any of these lightly. John always is connecting a message with the sign, and very often even connects a feast with the message with the sign. And in this case, he's going to do the same thing. So let me give you a little bit of introduction here. First off, as we have said, this is a seemingly obscure sign. It isn't something that actually stands out. It, it may not even at first be as impressive as turning water to wine. It just seems to be another one of those incidents in which Jesus does something wonderful for someone, and we go, that's nice, and move on. But there is obviously more. Secondly, I want you to keep in mind that the next three chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7, these chapters have a transition that goes from a reservation about who Jesus is. You see that with Nicodemus. Uh, you see that with the Jews. There's a reservation of who he is into a, a something much more, a rejection of Jesus. So there's, there we begin to see overt rejections as Jesus becomes more bold in showing us who he is and more bold in what he is doing. He's going to really penetrate the Jewish mind and the Jewish thought. And he's also penetrating, of course, those who would claim to be believers but aren't true disciples or true believers. Thirdly, keep in mind here that John is writing on two levels. Most of us, if not all of us, back in the day when we read the Gospel John, we read it just like we would have read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Oh, more about the life of Jesus. John's kind of unique. He doesn't mention everything the others mention. Isn't that interesting? 
and we've all done that. I've certainly done that until it was brought to my attention that John is writing on two levels. Yes, there is first and foremost a level presenting Jesus and presenting what true discipleship is or what true believers are. And that has been mentioned many times. Are you not a, not are you a believer, but you are a true believer? Do you go beyond what would normally be considered just as the general public as somebody says, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. It is more than that. But then there is this second level <clears throat> where John goes, and John is emphasizing an exodus story through Jesus because he's trying to show us that Jesus is directly related to the God of the Old Testament, the God who delivered Israel. And so now he presents Jesus as the new Moses, the new deliverer, and specifically he's showing him as the one who is now leading a brand new exodus leading his people on the ultimate spiritual journey that was foreshadowed and echoed in the Old Testament. So there's a quick introduction, but very important to, to see this third point especially. John always is giving us hints about incidents in the Old Testament, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He gives us hints about what took place during the Exodus and how we are now to observe something new and greater that comes in Jesus, showing Jesus as being not only the Messiah, but the God of the Old Testament, the God who has come in the flesh, which was the affirmation of chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, so uh, there, there's first and foremost those important things to keep in mind. Stop. See, there, there you go. Any questions about that? Any questions about what I just said? Are, are we on the same page with those things? Hopefully, maybe. Any, anything at all? Okay. We're, we're, all, we're all good. You are, you are uh, going 60 miles an hour on the train, and now we're going to ramp it up to a little, little, little more. All right? We get the train really moving. Okay, so let's, uh, let, let's go from here now. And I wanted to look at some pictures that connect us to the sign. So in John, you want to see pictures. You want to take a snapshot of what John describes and notice carefully his words that he gives. Without that, we tend to miss the sign. So that's what we want to, want to look at next. The first thing we see is John's continued emphasis on water. We've already seen that in the gospel, haven't we? We continue, have continued to see water. He turned the water to wine. He told Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. We have also seen Jesus and John baptizing in water. We have seen a woman drawing water from a well and Jesus saying, I can give you living water. When we get to chapter 6, Jesus is going to walk on water. In chapter 7, he's going to call out and say, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Water, water, all the way through. When we see the emphasis on water, we want to think especially that this is not some kind of coincidence this water is a reminder of the Exodus because in the Exodus, God also had great emphasis on water. 
Moses himself is, is his name is drawn out because he's drawn out of water. Moses has his own Exodus story in his personal life. He has to be saved through water, just like Israel has to be saved through water. And there's constant emphasis on those things. You have judgment on, on, on Egypt. The water, life, is turned to blood, death, indicating the death of that nation. And then you have the emphasis on Israel, of course, leaving Egypt. Deliverance comes through water. You have when they come into the wilderness, the first miracle is turning bitter water to fresh water. God, the giver of that life and water. And then obviously, God providing water throughout the wilderness which is a reminder that's done for the Feast of Tabernacles when they were given emphasis on what God was doing then to give them life. And we can even go beyond that and notice when Balaam gave his third uh, attempted curse that ended up to be a blessing, he, he, he said this in Numbers 24, 6 and 7, Water will flow from his buckets, referring to Israel. His seed will have abundant water. His king will be greater than Agag. His kingdom will be exalted. And so even in the Exodus story, there is a prophecy that the Messiah is going to bring this greater water. It's going to be abundant. It's going to be overflowing. And he's going to be a king over his kingdom that is exalted. So we have that, that picture that's given there as well. Uh, Jesus then, first and foremost, is just showing himself to be the true source throughout all of these, the true source of healing waters. And so we'll keep that little thematic statement in mind as we explore this then a little further. Okay, so now notice back in chapter 5 and verse 1. John introduces this by saying, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. As we have mentioned, John connects miracles or signs with feasts. In this case, it is a little unique, isn't it? He doesn't tell us which feast it is. I would suggest two explanations for that. One of them is it wouldn't matter which feast it is because all the feasts are predictive of the Messiah. All the feasts show something great about what the Messiah is bringing. Uh, the Passover feast, the Messiah becomes the Passover lamb. The Pentecost or feast of first fruits, the Messiah brings the first fruits of those who will be saved and raised from the dead. And then the tabernacle feast of which Zechariah says is the great ending feast in which all of us celebrate uh, in that last day and celebrate then forever. Uh, and, and as I've mentioned maybe five times before, if you wanted to pick a feast to celebrate, you would definitely do tabernacles because you just get to eat for seven days. In eternity, we just get to eat for eternity. You know, I mean, how cool. Uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets, and uh, I just can't get over the discussions. So they just kind of be kind of cool. Uh, we'll, we'll spend the first uh, half a million years just with Jeremiah because he's got a big story to tell, I'm sure. There, but there's just all kinds of stuff that are, that are cool about that. However, uh, there would be another idea that John is simply saying, in this case, there was a feast, and that's the reason Jesus is in Jerusalem. <laughs> we could just say, okay, well, maybe he's just simply saying, 
uh, there was a feast. He went to Jerusalem. That's why he's there. Because the greater issue here is verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. That day was the Sabbath. And this is truly giving us the Exodus uh, picture, the Exodus correspondence. Maybe you and growing up did not think of the Sabbath day as something (coughs) that corresponded to the book of Exodus. And yet that's what Sabbath is all about. Sabbath was given to them to remind them that God has a greater rest to come. As a matter of fact, we could go back uh, and, uh, and see this as we will will in just a moment. We look at the message. We'll see how Sabbath and Exodus are uh, very, very closely uh, related. All right, next picture we need to see is I want you to visualize the pool. You will notice that John uh, refers to uh, this in Aramaic at the end of verse 2 called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So stop and let's, let's visualize, let's in our minds walk into this colonnade. Let's walk into this area and take a look around. It's horrifying. You have blind people trying to find the way to the pool when the waters get stirred so they can be healed. You have lame people who are doing their best when the waters are stirred to somehow crawl down and touch the water before someone gets ahead of them. And you have paralyzed people. Maybe there are friends next to these, some of these, that immediately try to drag them down to touch the water. And probably many others that are so helpless that they're just laying there waiting for death. It is a virtual convalescent home of the the worst degree. It is far beyond our own imagination because they have no one. And it is hopelessness. It's intense. It's suffering. I wonder how many are groaning, are moaning, are hurting, are in pain. There's no uh, soft beds, no uh, hospice to care for them. Uh, They, for the most part, are desolate. It is, it is a horrifying picture. It's a scene that should create in us tears and compassion for what is going on. But that then leads us to the next picture that ties into this. Jesus chose one man to heal. Now, if that isn't odd... I don't know what odd is. After we see Jesus repeatedly in the other accounts, constantly going in the midst of hundreds and hundreds, multitudes of people, and he's touching and healing all of them. In this case, you see in verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids. 
And there is only one man that he is going to touch. Only one man that he has come to heal. And he does so in a most interesting way. He comes to heal this man virtually anonymously. He doesn't have his disciples with him. He doesn't have anybody else. He's just basically incognito. He walks in. He looks around. He picks out the one man. It is obviously planned. It's obviously something he has seen in his mind. And he is going here for a reason. And he picks out the one man. And he walks over and he simply has a simple, quiet conversation with him. Would you like to be healed? Can you imagine being the man and having the stranger ask you, would you like to be healed? Sure. (laughs) But nobody gets me to the water in time. Get up, take your bed, and walk. And then Jesus just disappears. He just walks away, walks out of the multitude, gets away from everybody, and boom, that's it. Now, you can already see the uniqueness of the sign. You can already see why John is presenting this and why Jesus did it. Jesus does this specifically. I kind of chuckle about it, but he does this specifically because he's thinking, this is going to be in the Gospel John. (laughs) This is going to be my special sign. This is going to be something that's going to send the message I want to send. It's a special message, and he places it that way. Now, we've got to ask this question then. Why does he only heal with one man? What is special about this one man? What is unique about this one man? What's different about him than anyone else? Has not others suffered just as badly? Why this one man? And there's only one thing that John tells us. This man had been suffering 38 years. What's so special about 38 years? What does the number 38 have to do with anything in the Old Testament? What a weird number. It's not 40. It's 38. Have you ever heard of 38? (laughs) 38. God doesn't use 38. What are we talking about, 38? And yet, here it is. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they perished. That's the only number 38 in the Old Testament. And it perfectly symbolizes this man. This man had been ill, invalid, 38 years. What is he waiting for? He's just waiting to die. How many times has he prayed, Lord, please, just let me die? If we think Job went through something, imagine this man for 38 years. Why don't you let me die? 
And God in the Old Testament imagined the people in the wilderness, age 20 and up when they left Egypt, going out in the wilderness and rebelling against God over and again and rebelling at Kadesh Barnea and not going in and conquering the land. And God says, you won't go in, then you will not go in. And for the next 38 years, you're going to wander around in this wilderness until you're all dead. Imagine being one of those men in the wilderness simply waiting to die. And they're not waiting to die on a riverfront. And they're not waiting to die next to the great sea in a mansion that watches the waves break. They're waiting to die in the midst of the most desolate place that you could find on the place of the earth. They're simply waiting to die. And God feeds them every day, and God gives them water every day, and then waits to for them to die because he is against them and he wants to destroy them until they are perished from the earth. 38 years. Here's the cool thing. For 38 years, the time God waited for 603,548 men of war to die, the number 38 then represents death hopelessness, suffering, the end of any person who has not been forgiven of their sins. It is the end of every single person that's ever lived without Jesus. That is the end. That's the representation. The number 38 then becomes significant here. Jesus chose this one man as a sign that he would, though, deliver every man and woman from the number 38. That's the real picture. Jesus chooses one man. He doesn't heal the world. He doesn't come into every community and heal everybody. It is not his purpose, but it is purpose to send the message that he has come in order to heal everybody that is under the same curse, who are simply waiting to die, going through the wilderness, just waiting for that end to come. There's the introduction then to the surface of this picture. Now go beyond that just a little bit more. Is that jerky up there? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Maybe my computer needed to be restarted. I restarted it this morning. Uh, so we will see. At any rate, now let's blame it on the internet. That's better. I always like that. <laughs> Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and, uh, and verse 14. Look at, look at the parallel and what God has done for us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The people in the wilderness... Subject to lifelong slavery. Subject to the, to the eventual and sure death in the wilderness without the promised land. And Jesus came and he suffered in order to destroy the one who has the power of death. And all of our lives we had faced that, that fear of death and the end. And Jesus has delivered us from that. And that's the picture that he gives here 
with this particular with this particular sign or miracle. Now, let's take it from there and let's notice some critical messages then from the sign. Number one, why would Jesus tell a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath? <laughs> exactly. He knew it would infuriate the Jews. <laughs> oh, so he just wanted to infuriate the Jews. Well, not exactly. But what he is doing is, is he heals this man on the Sabbath because he knows full well they're going to turn around and go, you can't do this. You can't carry your bed. He knew full well they would do that. And by giving them that, they, he is trying to teach them something that he couldn't have taught them verbally without them objecting. Is Jesus going to walk up to them and say, you know what? All those years, the people in the wilderness that dying, you're in the same condition, and you're going to die without God, and you're going to be separated from God, and I'm the only one that can keep you from that and heal you. They'll listen to that. Wrong. <laughs> and so what Jesus does is, is he teaches by the sign. That's what a sign does. A sign informs and sign teaches. It gives a message beyond the amazement of the miracle. And that's exactly what happened. When the man is healed, he, he, the, the Jews see him carrying his bed, and they turn around and said, Who gave you this? Who, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? It's not lawful, verse 10. And what's the man say? Turns around and he says, um, the, the man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. You see, the man who's healed gets the message that they don't get, and he doesn't even know Jesus yet. If the man can heal me, he can also tell me what to do, and I need to respond. If the man can heal me, if he has the authority to heal me after being ill and invalid for 38 years, he certainly has the authority to tell me to take up my bed and walk. Who are you to argue with this? So the reaction of the Jews... They're only seeing a sign, or they do not see the sign. They're only seeing a man carrying a bed on the Sabbath. That is the first major message we must see. I don't know how many times I couldn't count that I have met with complaints over the years in teaching the lost because somebody decided that what was going on was not going to send the right message and lost the opportunity with a lost soul. More concerned about an interpretation, a misinterpretation of the Bible than the understanding of the true message. We must keep in mind that before all else, Bible study that only sees commands without the context of who God is, is misinformed and is dangerous and is divisive and will destroy God's message. How many times does the Lord have to quote for us as he did in Matthew repeatedly? If you'd known this, 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Was it unlawful for the man to carry his bed on the Sabbath? Yeah. No. Yeah. Let's have a debate. But nobody is thinking about rejoicing that what Jesus did was the most appropriate thing that would fit the message of what the Sabbath is all about. The Sabbath gave the message of freedom. The Sabbath gave the message of healing. The Sabbath gave the message of rest. The Sabbath eventually becomes our healing and our rest throughout eternity. The Sabbath is the most appropriate thing. And all I can do in reading this is become infuriated that these people never said a word about praise God. The man of 38 years has been brought to life. Who says that? No one. No one. What a tragedy. What a tragedy when we pick apart like tithing the mint and the dill and the anise and the cumin and then forgetting the more major issues of the law of mercy and faithfulness and grace. You can't supersede this. God, first and foremost, is about love. How many times did the apostles get condemned? They're picking grain on the Sabbath. Uh, Don't care that they just got through casting out demons and healing people. If you understood the message of the Sabbath, you would not have condemned the guiltless. That's Jesus' words. And we are misinformed with that. And as a matter of fact, service to God never happens until Hosea 6, verse 6 is understood. We simply cannot simply look at the burnt offering and the importance of offering a physical sacrifice if we do not understand what God desires first and foremost mercy and knowledge of Him. All commands have to come out of the knowledge of God or they will be misinterpreted. And it's been done tons and tons of time. I was the, uh, a school board member once in a charter school. And because I had so many Bible studies going on, I did not have time to get to the school board meeting and get back to the building. It so happened that the school did not have a place for the first couple of months to meet. So I said, meet in our upper room here at the church building, which is right next to my office in the church building, and we will just have the school board meeting there because I've got a Bible study right afterwards. And besides that, I have a wonderful opportunity with the president of the school. Great. We did it. You wouldn't guess. Somebody complained. You can't do that. Lost the opportunity with the president. Lost the opportunity 
because the elders said, somebody complained, you can't do it. Because you know somebody might think that this church is connected with the school. Who cares? <laughs> and besides, nobody would anyway. Um, you know what? I'm not still upset about that, am I? Yes, I am. <laughs> What's crazy is, I could keep telling you stories like that. And it makes you weep to think of opportunities that are lost because of some silly made-up rule. And somebody might think, you're the only one thinking it, dude. The people of the community aren't thinking it. <laughs> How crazy. We have to understand God's mercy and purpose. Otherwise, the Sabbath rule doesn't make sense, and you're misunderstanding it. There's a point there. Anyway, we need to keep those things in mind. Look at this. This is Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. Didn't have it up there. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. This is why you keep the Sabbath. Remember you're a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Why did God command you to keep the Sabbath day? Because you were slaves in Egypt and I delivered you. What is Sabbath about? It's Sabbath about deliverance. It's about deliverance. And what did this man get? Did get it delivered from 38 years, 38 years of slavery to his body. And God delivered him and sent us the message. Even those of us who've rebelled and those of us who have sinned and we come back to him. He is the one who will deliver us from the number 38. It's such a pretty picture. Sabbath is a shadow of rest and true healing. Final messages of the sign. Notice Jesus saying in chapter 5 and verse 14, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse would happen to you. You see a relationship there between sin and the physical ailment? He says, look, you're well. Stop sinning, lest something worse happens to you. There's a relationship between sin and illness. Oh no, the Bible is not teaching there's a some kind of personal direct relationship in the sense of, whoa, I did something wrong the other day, now I'm stricken with uh, COVID, you know, or something. Uh, that's not the idea. But, but the physical ailment is the result of our fall. What did, you, what did God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? If you eat the tree, and here's the literal Hebrew, if you eat the tree, dying you shall die. He didn't just say you will die. In the Hebrew, he said dying you shall die. I've often said the dying part, okay, but the process of lingering, not okay. That's not the fun part, is it? Okay, take the last breath, yippee, that's great. But we don't like to get there. We're all terminal. People sometimes ask me, how are you, how you doing? I said, well, last I checked, okay, but who knows? <laughs> you have no idea at any given time, are you okay or not? 
Dying, you will die. We're all going in that direction. There's a relationship here that is, that is that. Thus, this is not only death. This is dying, and we should be more concerned about our spiritual eternity than our physical deterioration. And there's, importantly, something worse that could happen. Go and sin no more, lest something worse happens. What could be worse but eternity without God? Notice also the words, sin no more. You've been healed for a purpose. You've been healed for a purpose. Please think just for a minute. 38 years of suffering. 38 years of suffering. 38 years. As a sin. You imagine how, I mean, just think how long that is. It's an incredible amount of time that he has suffered. And then one day, out of nowhere, this stranger walks up and says, You want to be healed? And says, Get up and walk, take your bed and walk. And his whole life has been changed. Who wouldn't then, from that time on, live for the one who saved you? who wouldn't be immersed in caring about the one who saved you and his, and his interest. All of us have been delivered from the number 38. Go and sin no more, but more importantly, even than that, understand you now have a purpose. God didn't just save us. He saved us for a reason. He saved us so that we could be His people doing His purposes, His body fulfilling His will here on earth. Jesus has given us hope to everyone who's been waiting to die from the curse of 38 years. And we have been touched by Jesus and told that we can live. The promised land is next. Be the kind of person that appreciates what Jesus has done here. And the visual picture of that suffering of that man in those 38 years in the wilderness ought to cause us to understand the greatness of our salvation. We can help you in any way. We'd be glad to do so. Hope that you will consider your condition before the Lord. That without him, 38 is a very, very bad number. Hope that you will consider that. If we can help you in any way, please let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.